Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is David Trelevin, PhD. David is a writer, educator, and trauma professional working at the intersection of mindfulness and trauma. He's the founder of Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, TSM, a community of practitioners committed to setting a standard of care through mindfulness-based practices, interventions, and programs. His work has been adopted into multiple mindfulness teacher training programs around the world, including UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. David is the author of the acclaimed book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, and is a visiting scholar at Brown University and has worked with a number of organizations to bring trauma-sensitive mindfulness to their staff and programs. David's work reveals an astounding and, at first, troubling fact that some people who immerse themselves in mindfulness meditation actually become re-traumatized through the practice if teachers are not well-trained and trauma-informed. What does it mean to become a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher? And then, as spiritual explorers ourselves, how do we navigate our journey with the tools that we need so we can expand through spiritual practice, metabolize trauma, and do deep inner work in ways that are safe and that promote our flourishing? You can listen to this conversation to learn more with David Trelevin. To begin, David, if you can share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to make such a focus of your work on the intersection of trauma healing and mindfulness meditation. How did that become such a focus for you? Yeah, it was all personal. <laughs> At first, it was just a lot of pain. Um, I came out of a uh, big meditator and I, I, had a, I was in Toronto growing up. And a friend was doing, uh, her friend's mom was doing a youth group for meditation. I thought, that sounds cool. So I went and tried that. I totally fell in love with practice. And then was deep into psychology, trained to be a psychotherapist. And my main work there was working with male sex offenders um, in, in British Columbia. So all over the province, individual and group work. So I was having these two different areas of my life, like learning a lot about trauma, feeling a huge draw to want to work well around trauma and then having a contemplative practice that felt so important. And I went as deep as I could and we got really into it, had some awesome teachers and started to have some experiences that were pretty challenging on longer term retreats. And I was coming back off the retreats feeling a little bit worse for wear. A couple of friends were like, Hey, something, you know, what's going on for you? And the more that I talked to people, they said, you know, have you thought much about trauma? 
And that opened this whole inquiry for me about what's the relationship between meditation and trauma, and then started to do some trauma work and found that what I was getting out of the trauma work was something that I was needing so desperately in my meditation practice. So that's been the, the kind of the, the conversation for me for the last 15 years is how do these things fit together? And then what do people need to know about trauma to practice well? That's been mm -hmm. a huge, huge point for me. And I think we're going to talk quite a lot about that because I think it's an area of confusion and inquiry for many people. It certainly is for me, mm -hmm. something that I want to understand better. So right in the beginning of your book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, you write, for people who've experienced trauma, mindfulness meditation can exacerbate symptoms of traumatic stress. And I think often people think, you know, mindfulness meditation, it's going to help me with everything, right? It's going to totally. help. That's what, you know, I'm going to become more aware. I'm going to become more grounded. I'm going to become more calm. What do you mean it can exacerbate symptoms of traumatic stress? Yeah. The, when I brought this to a publisher, that was the exact question. They're like, what are you talking about? It's such a, and that was the headline. And it was actually what came from my own experience and then talking to lots of people, that was the call, was wanting people to know, hey, this is a bit of a double-edged sword. So the question comes up, well, why? But just to first to your point, I think that's really legit. So we have all this research now that mindfulness is helpful in reducing stress. Trauma is a form of stress. And therefore, a lot of people say, well, A plus B, you'd think it would help. And it does for a lot of people. I want to make sure I'm clear about that right up front. And then there's going to be this subset of people where there's a reflexive orientation to traumatic stimuli and they get caught in a, in a vortex. Okay, and hold on. Let's just make sure that we understand what that means. A reflexive orientation to traumatic stimuli. I am going to interrupt you, <laughs> David, for the uh, everyday listener here. What does that mean? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's funny. That does sound technical. But basically the idea is that if you're traumatized, you're going to have a series of symptoms, as you know, um, that will look different for everyone. But we could say it's you're often experiencing some form of traumatic stimuli in the present moment. So that could be I'm re-experiencing traumatic images, memories, sensations, emotions. So that's that's just often an experience, as you know, for people who are struggling with trauma. Meditation, as you know, it's a very powerful practice. You're asking people to pay attention in a very sustained and consistent way to their experience. Inevitably, people struggling with trauma will bump into that traumatic stimuli. Again, thoughts, memories, and that's not bad news. For some people, that'll be incredibly healing. They can be present. And then for others, it will be a point where this is this reflexive orientation. It's like their mind is hyper-focusing on the stimuli they feel like the trauma is happening again. They get caught in a bit of a vortex. And if they don't have tools to move through it differently in that moment, we could talk more about that, they can end up caught in a bit of a cycle in, in terms in meditation practice. So more is not always going to be better with attention. And it's just trying to shine a light on that aspect. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a spectrum of people who would say, you know, trauma has affected me at this side of the spectrum. I'm a, I feel like I'm someone who's had a lot of trauma in my life. Most people have had some degree of trauma. They might be on the other end of the 
spectrum. How do I know as someone who's approaching spiritual practice, oh, I'm the kind of person I better really pay attention here because I could get re-traumatized, whether it's by mindfulness meditation or something else. What kind of awareness do I need to have about myself as I enter a practice? That's great. Well, the one, whenever I'm teaching, mostly I'm teaching teachers, but whenever I'm talking about this topic, I'm trying to come forward with, uh, to not making it as fearful at all, that people don't need to be afraid. Uh That if you've experienced trauma, or even if you're experiencing some symptoms of trauma, that doesn't mean automatically steer clear of powerful practices like meditation. I think to your point, Tammy, it would be uh, paying attention in a moment to moment way, uh, or even just like practice to practice, session to session. How am I doing? Just staying awake to it. So for example, I try meditation for the first time, or I do a body scan. How'd that go in a really practical way? Because ultimately trauma-informed practice to me, it's a deeply person-centered kind of practical approach, like what works, what doesn't. And if you find yourself more dysregulated after meditation, great information, maybe you need some modifications. But for other people, they might say, wow, I feel more present. I feel like I can be be with uh, memories. Or So you got to just, this, you got to stay mindful of it. And it's not a cookie cutter approach at all. But if you want to talk more about the symptoms, we could go there if you want. Yeah, well, let's let's. There's so much to talk about, David. We're just going to unpack it slowly. And what I want to do is I want to go into each of the five principles of trauma sensitive mindfulness that you lay out in your book. So we're going to discuss each one in a slow and gradual way here. But to start, you said something uh, really interesting. I just want to pick up on that. If you find yourself more quote unquote dysregulated after practice, that's something to pay attention to. Because one of the things I've noticed is in doing various kinds of practices, not just mindfulness meditation, but other practices, there can be a quality of sort of unraveling of the sense of a solid, coherent self. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of the reason why I'm doing these practices is to discover who am I that's not this very solid identity. So I can feel uh, undone if you will. Is that the same as being dysregulated or how do you actually know when you're quote unquote dysregulated in a way that you need to attend to? I love that we just jumped right in the deep end. I mean, that's such a huge question to me. Someone, I was doing a workshop where I talk about the window of tolerance, which we might get into here as a frame to answer the question, how would I know when to lean in or back off of practice? And so someone said, well, how does the window relate to enlightenment? And so it's it's a real I think it's a really tricky spot. Let's try to let's try to get into your question. So is the unraveling that's happening? Yes, that's a part of practice, right? That's what many of us are actually um, engaging in practice for. I wouldn't equate it with dysregulation. And yet those kind of opening practices or powerful practices, can end up having some disorienting and even dysregulating effects. And so the research that I've seen around trauma and meditation is really saying, how does the person appraise the situation? So do they go to a teacher and the teacher says, yeah, you're dysregulated and you're unraveling, but that's great news, keep going. Or maybe you go to a therapist who says the opposite, says, you know, you need to back off here. So I think this gets into some really tricky territory of what are the goals of practice? What are you up to? And what are the frames that we're using to decide when to push on and when to back off? 
If I could just say one more thing, Tammy. Please, because you sort of reframed the question, but I don't know if I got the answer, uh, which would mean in my own experience, how would I know you're dysregulated in a way that you need to pay attention to and make some corrections versus you're dysregulated in some positive healing process kind of way? Well, if we can make it, if you're open to being personal around it, like what what would, this is the conversation I'd want to have with anyone who's asking that question, because that is the question, I think, for a lot of people around trauma sensitivity inside of practice. How would I know? And so I, where I'd be curious is, what is your day-to-day like in the, and what's your assessment of you and your life and your practice when you're having these moments of more unraveling? Um, is it, this is tricky where I don't want to use the word happier, but would it send you in the direction where you're like, no, this feels like progress for me, or this is in the, this feels, uh, growthful and directionally appropriate for me, or does it feel actually more destabilizing? Right. I mean, quite honestly, I don't know sometimes. Right. I don't know. It, it kind of feels like a whole lot of both. I mean, I trust the process that I'm in and and like I do have a sense of trust, but okay, let me ask this in a different way. We're going to move right ahead into the starting point for all trauma-informed practice that you write about in your book. You say, stay within the window of tolerance. So can you explain for people who are like, I think I know what the window of tolerance is, but I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to stay within it? Because to tie this to our previous question, if I'm within the window of tolerance, I'm not quote unquote dysregulated, correct? Yes. On some, yes. Uh, technically you could say that. This is great. So why don't we hang here at the window and then let's keep, I'd love to keep your, I love that you brought that in. Cause I think that could be a nice question to keep tagging back to, cause that's where it gets relevant, right? Is like, well, what do I do with this? But let's, so let's use the window as the frame. So it comes from Dan Siegel, as many folks will know from his book, The Developing Mind in 1999, where he's saying, okay, he's using complexity theory and systems theory and saying any system will have a, a window, as you know, where a system is, I guess, functioning, uh, where integration is possible and it's functioning in the most harmony. It's, it's, there's a balance here between chaos and rigidity. And then a couple people used this model and said, oh, this really applies to trauma. Uh, Pat Ogden and a number of people use this so that they're talking about the window as a zone of optimal physiological arousal. And this is where we're feeling our hearts beating, but it's not racing. We can feel relatively connected to ourselves and others. We can string together thoughts. So this is that band in the middle. And then on either side of the window, we have the two extremes. So up top, we'd have hyper arousal. This is where we're experiencing too much physiological activation. Uh, we're agitated, hyper aroused, or hyper vigilant, sweating. And on the bottom, we have hypo arousal. And this is where it's the opposite, not enough physiological arousal. We're more spacey, numb, or shut down. And all of us are going to be, the, the window fluctuates. As you know, we're going to be experiencing all different elements of the window all the time. But the key point that I think the trauma people brought out is that when you're experiencing ongoing symptoms of trauma, like post-traumatic stress, you tend to be in dysregulated arousal. So you're more hyper or hypo aroused. 
Put another way, that would be more like fight, flight, or freeze. You're out of your window. And that just makes life so hard and painful and difficult and makes practice difficult too. So that's a starting point for the window. Where do you want to go here from, from there? Well, uh, I think the interesting question then would be, here I am, I'm a meditator. How do I know when I'm outside the window? What are the signs? Yes. How do I personally know while I'm on the cushion? That to me is the inquiry. And that's one of the payoffs of having adopting a trauma-informed lens to any practice. It's just staying in that question of like, okay, where am I right now? Like one of the, one of the ways that I like mindfulness talked about in, in terms of research is mindfulness as enhancing self-regulation, enhancing our ability to know what's happening when it's happening and gauge where we are, for example, in our window. So if I'm in a meditation, and again, getting back to your piece that you brought in about where there's that kind of unraveling, maybe I'm starting to experience anxiety, hypervigilance, you know, for me for good reason in my life. That doesn't necessarily mean to back off. And this is why I want to make sure this is clear up front. Sometimes people hear the trauma sensitive sensitivity and they think, oh, when we hit discomfort or we're out of our window, that immediately means we're trying to ground and get calm. But that's not what I'm suggesting here. It's more tracking yourself through different practices and experiences to see how the practice is impacting you. And the main headline for me with meditation is if you're doing a practice and you find that you're out of your window in the practice and the practice is making it worse, if it's exacerbating the dysregulation, you're hypervigilant, you become more hypervigilant for that practice and in the days following, that can be a sign that you might need some tools or support in order to be continuing on with that practice. That's my kind of, that's my case. And you could disagree with it, but that's um, what I propose to people. You know, it's it's not so much agree or disagree. I think I'm really uh, trying to understand here, David, mm -hmm. and what's coming up for me as I'm listening. And one, I want to make sure all of our listeners feel embraced in this conversation and uh, can follow along with us. So I want to give a little context. In my own life experience, I did a lot of, you could say, extreme meditation practice. So that means like 12 hours a day for 10, 10 days in a row, extreme, extreme practice. So I, I'm coming from that frame of reference. And part of what informed me was uh, interviewing different people who had various kinds of awakening experiences and hearing them say, I was sitting on the cushion, my heart started racing, I thought I was gonna die. Like we're talking, they are so out of the window of tolerance, right. you know? And I stayed with it. And in staying with it, I had these kinds of breakthroughs. Sure. You know? Yeah. And so I'm trying to make sense of that. And the very helpful framework you're proposing here, which is if we find ourselves outside of our window of tolerance, that may be a time to shift what we're doing and uh, stop the practice and get a hug or, you know, uh, go, go hang out with a dog or go for a walk or do something else. And so I'm trying to make sense of both mm. these things at the same time and wonder how you do. I'm so glad you're personalizing it because... As we talked about just coming on here, my I tend to be mostly working with meditation teachers and want this to be totally applicable to all pe people here listening. So just because you're sharing, I'll share my own experience. 
I had the, I love, by the way, that you're doing, that was your kind of come from with those long practices. Similarly, I was also going on retreats and was experiencing um, sometimes complete dissolving of the boundaries of my body, which on some level through a trauma lens, you could say would be dissociation. I was disconnecting from my body. And, and yet in the context of teachings, it was actually a very positive experience. And other times, similarly, I'm super anxious, connecting with some trauma and really hanging with it. And so let me just pause. The key question for me, at least through the lens of trauma and the window, is what's integratable? And that's my frame. I'm curious if this resonates for you. When I got down, I got down to California and I had been in Canada and I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to do a whole bunch of really intense practices. And I was doing the long meditations. I got into holotropic breath work, you know, intense breathing, having these massive out of my window experiences. And I would just kind of blow my system and think, this is incredible. And my experience in the days and weeks that followed is that my my psychobiology would kind of come back together in the way it was before. Nothing had really changed. Something didn't integrate. The experience was too much for me to handle. My experience with trauma work, and again, I'm curious about your path here, was that it needed to be more stepwise for me over time. And I needed people to help me, me decide or guide me working with the window in more skillful ways. I was out, I was back in. I was out, I was back in. It grew my window over time instead of these big blow-up experiences that didn't, for me at least, have any kind of lasting impact or effect. So that's the edge that I get curious about is when do we straddle the, the boundary of the window? Right. And I think it brings up this interesting question when you say what's integratable, hmm. because is the a platform that we're integrating into a smaller sense of self than where we're going. And so now we're taking huge experiences. No, they can't be integrated because in a sense, if they were to just be integrated, they would be sort of subsumed in some way by some small, or is that not what you mean? Because of course, the spiritual journey, at least in my experience, is always this kind of enlargening of our field of being and our sense of who we are. Mm -hmm. It's, I love the, what you're saying about the frame, because I think there can be a way that people would apply trauma sensitive practice to try to just get back into a controlled sort of smaller self experience, which I don't want to advocate, advocate for, because I do want people to get to actually transcend, have these big experiences and the people that I've been working with or feeling like I'm advocating for are people who, these are the hundreds of interviews I've done over the years, who said, uh, I was going big, but it was really um, destabilizing my life because of trauma. It was actually too much for me to handle. I was having these big experiences, but I wasn't able to actually you know, wash the dishes or go to my, go to my job. It was too much too soon. So to me, it's a question of pacing. I'm curious how that lands for you, but that is the journey of trauma to me is learning when can I lean in and when maybe I back off. And that's actually in service of 
healing and transformation. Mm-hmm. If I can just share one quick story, Tammy. The first trauma work that I did, the, the trauma therapist said, I want you to start by telling me about what's working. And I was like, I don't want to talk about what's working. I want to talk about my trauma. That's Yeah, I want to talk about what's not working. That's, that's, that's why I'm paying okay, you, right? right? If you could, let me throw this all down, down in front of right, you. Exactly, right. go for it. And I'll never forget, she just looked at me and she said, your capacity to be with what's working for you right now is actually going to support you to be with what's not working. That's actually, that's, that's what you need right now at this phase. So you and I might be talking about different phases. I'm curious what you think there, but that was exactly what I needed and what I wasn't getting in meditation practice. So first of all, I just love that what's working and let's keep feeding and doing more of what's working so we can integrate bigger and bigger perspectives. I just love that as a, as mm-hmm. a teaching, David. And yeah. also I, I want to have this conversation with you. This conversation is important to me because obviously hundreds of people are contacting you and they're saying, I went to a meditation retreat or I did intensive yoga practice or I had some kind of other psychedelic journey or something that I thought was going to be part of my spiritual journey and a healing journey for me. And in fact, I was re-traumatized. David, you're now the expert in this field. Help me. So there's obviously a huge need out there that you're addressing and offering a, a framework to help. And I think we're pointing out here how anything, any framework can get overused and, and misused and needs to be understood with a lot of nuance. And we're, we're starting with a, a lot of the nuance, but I also want to make sure that we're talking directly to that person mm-hmm. who says, you know, I really relate to this idea that this intensive practice I did re-traumatized me. Mm-hmm. So I think this might be a moment how would I know if I did some kind of practice and actually I was re-traumatized? How would I know? I think the simplest answer would be that it exacerbated whatever painful traumatic symptoms were in place before that experience. That's, that's what I would, and again, that's just a conversation to have with someone, but doubling down won't always, as you know, it's not always the move. And sometimes with trauma, we might actually just need different practices. Where I get uncomfortable is sometimes people will hear that and think that I'm advocating for a quality of like safetyism. We just need to keep this all contained and safe. I don't want to say that because it's really important that we have these experiences, I think, that stretch our boundaries. But the question, and this is the person-centered, to speak directly to that person is, okay, you're probably in a lot of pain. You're coming to practice with the best of intention. The people that I meet, they were hurting in so much pain. They had heard about the benefits often of meditation and they came in just saying, I am going to do everything I can to, to just commit to this path. And I think in part that, that zeal or the commitment sometimes led people to double down in the face of these this exacerbation when symptoms were getting worse. So that's the question I would want to be in with people is, yes, sometimes powerful practices like meditation or doing kind of psychedelic therapy, it can be too much, too soon, too fast for people. 
and it ends up flooding the system. We get overwhelmed, even re-traumatized to the point where it feels like we were unsafe again, or we were unable to move through the experience. But I'd also say to that person, it's okay. It's that happens and good, good information. And you can come back here and say, okay, let's, what, let's have a conversation about maybe what different factors would need to be in place for you here. And it's not your fault that of course you wanted to heal. So you went big or you went and did a practice. That's great. I want people to keep coming back to different practices. I think that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, this first principle of trauma-sensitive mindfulness, stay within the window of tolerance. You mentioned that you train teachers. If I'm a mindfulness teacher and I'm looking out at 50 people who are practicing meditation, is there a way I could identify, oh, that person's outside their window of tolerance? I can see it from here. Or how would I know as a teacher? It's so tricky. This is why do, doing the trainings with people because it's a no, often a nonverbal practice. And as you know, and so, and then that can be combined with interviews every couple of days if we're on retreat. So how would a meditation teacher know? At the most basic level, if the window holds water for people and they're adopting that, it's to look for signs and symptoms of hyperarousal or hypoarousal. But someone, you could think of it, I think the simplest way is if someone's accelerator of the autonomic nervous system or the brake is slammed the ground. So if someone is just, you know, that feeling where the accelerator's slammed, you can't kind of get out of that loop, hypervigilant, just racing thoughts, it's too much, or the opposite, where we're flooded, we're numb, dissociated, checked out. If you're noticing non-verbally that someone through the different practices you're offering is ending up stuck in either of those two places, that to me is where having a conversation I think can be useful. It's not to say, okay, don't meditate. Uh, we need to stop. It's actually just to get curious with someone and not just double down. And there's one more point, Tammy, on this is that I think what's really important for anyone who's holding people in practice is to not orient to being out of the window as a bad thing. Because I know sometimes I do in my practice, like, damn it, I'm at my window, I'm hypervigilant, I'm trying to teach this stuff. Instead of going, wow, this is a really smart factory loaded system in my body that's responding to stress in my life and in the world. And there's something really intelligent in this. Let me work with it as opposed to trying to, you know, oh, just get back in the window, which is not, not always so helpful. Right. That's very helpful. Now I can imagine teaching a group, you know, I used to teach meditation actually. I wish David, you and I had had this conversation a decade ago. I think I would have been a much better teacher when I was teaching, but I could imagine looking out at the group and I could identify if someone's foot was way on the accelerator. I would be able to see that that person seemed kind of racy or speedy or, you know, uh, panicky. I could see that. I think it's harder in the context of mindfulness meditation to identify if someone seems a little like numb or checked out because people are sitting basically still, how do you know? I mean, you can ask questions, but what, so what, what's how do you how do you figure that out? And, well, it's really kind of you. But the ten years ago, I I'm doubtful that yeah, I'd be curious to unpack that with you. Like, I bet you were already bringing a lot, and many people do. I was speaking, you know, when the book came out, to people who were not necessarily thinking in that in a way that was 
bringing in an understanding of psychology or trauma and they were doubling down, like just bring it back to the cushion. And I actually think for what it's worth, Tammy, that's actually changed a lot. Like if we were talking three or four years ago, I think the field's changed immensely. People aren't having as terrible experiences. I feel really happy about hearing the mm -hmm. experiences people are having. But um, to your point, I can't tell you the number of people. I meet so many people who go, wow, I didn't realize I've been a great associator and I'm getting props from my teacher and my community of being able to sit still for three to four hours at a time. But actually, I'm realizing that this came from a pretty deep trauma or a self-protective strategy that enabled me to do that. And it's not actually supporting me in my life in this moment. So I have met people who said I was in a, it's hard, it's, it's, I was get I was slipping through the cracks, I think. And yet tricky, as you know, deep concentration, that can also feel like hypoarousal where we're just really calm, even disconnected from the body. So I think it's that ongoing nuanced conversation with someone about how are they doing? How's practice? What are they noticing? You've been listening to Insights at the Edge. One of the greatest gifts we can give to others is to hold space for their experience, especially when it's very different from our own and even challenging to us in some important ways. Empathic healer and wisdom teacher Matt Kahn has written a new book on the transformative power of holding space. It's called All for Love, and you can pre-order the book at SoundsTrue.com or wherever books are sold. And now, all for love. Let's return to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so let's talk again to the spiritual explorer themselves. And this person says, okay, I know there's a certain point in my practice, whatever that practice might be, when I feel outside the window because of the accelerator. What can I do, David? What can I do at that point? I need to shift practices, which, which gets to the second principle mm. that you have of trauma-sensitive mindfulness, shift attention to support stability. Mm -hmm. Give us some ideas of how we shift attention, whether we're in hyper arousal or hypo arousal. That's great. The first thing I'd say to that person, I almost feel like we're getting to have direct conversations here with people is awesome job. That's such great noticing that that's huge. I think that's sometimes 50 to 70% of the whole experience practice is just even noticing that, oh, wow, here's a moment the accelerator's really slammed down. Do I need to make a shift here? So the first thing I'd say is great, just to even notice that. Second piece would be just to hang with it for a moment, just to see, let's get curious here and see what happens. Not reflexively say, okay, I have to get back in the window and kind of clamp down. But then third, this is where things get really interesting to me. And I'm sure you and I could geek out here, but what can you actually do? where we direct our attention is going to have huge implications for our physiological arousal or just basically how we're doing in a moment to moment way. So you and I right now, here we are engaged you know, in this conversation. I could also, I got this beautiful plant here 
beside the computer. And I can also direct some attention to this beautiful green organic <laughs> structured plant. And that's also, that's in this moment, just noticing that the aliveness, the color, it's grounding for me. I feel my feet on the ground. It grounds me a little bit. Conversely, if I shifted my attention to the feeling in my stomach of being really excited to meet you and wanting this to go really well and feeling anxious, then that would probably turn that up and you know amplify that. So in terms of trauma, attention can help us actually come back in the window in a big way. So quick example, and then I'll turn it back to you. So someone's in meditation, they have their eyes closed, they're in practice, and they're connecting with uh, uh, an uh, intrusive image connected to a trauma that, that just is repetitive. It can't, does not escaping them and keep coming back to it. It's very painful. So in practice, maybe I notice my heart's racing. Maybe I stay with that for a bit. I don't need to run away from it. Just, okay, let me see. I can be with the sensations. At some point I notice my heart's racing so much that I'm starting to lose my, any mindfulness. I, I feel like I'm flooded. It's too much. I feel overwhelmed. Maybe I open my eyes and direct it to something else in the room for 30 seconds or a minute, something simple as an anchor. And in doing so, I'm basically hitting the brakes. I'm modulating the intensity of the practice that I'm doing. So we could talk about more examples if you want, but there's lots of little ways that we can just modulate the intensity of a practice to help us kind of surf or tether that window and come back in and we come out, but really actually uh, uh, self-regulate in our practice. Mm -hmm. So that that helps when I'm feeling uh, hyper aroused. Mm -hmm. When I'm in a state where I feel just kind of like so lethargic that perhaps I'm numb or want to be numb, what do I do then? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm curious, but my experience has been that I need to open my senses more to my surrounding environment. And gosh, that pull is deep. When I'm in that zone of just like, I my eyes are closed, I do not want to, I don't want to come out of that numbness. What I'll need to do is I'll often need to open my eyes or sometimes go outside if I'm doing a practice, sometimes connecting with another person for me, that kind of co-regulation, having a conversation, awakenings, whatever's going to increase the energy somewhat for me. But then also, Tammy, I know for me, that's a really important compassion moment of like, yeah, you want to, you just want to stay here. Like I need sometimes just being in a practice, like, yeah, you, you're in hypo arousal here, but you're kind of frozen and stuck. And this is taking care of a lot and it has taken care of a lot. Sometimes just staying with some compassion can be really helpful for me too. But attention's key where we're shifting. If we want to come back in our window, looking up, looking to the horizon, having a conversation, standing up, all these little things can help. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like part of what you're saying here is there's so much empowerment that can come from knowing that we can be an active operator of our nervous system, which is something that I, I've learned uh, through hosting these conversations with some different experts on trauma healing, that that's just such an empowering thing to know, that you you get to have choices about the nervous system state you're in. You're not a prisoner to whatever state it is. That's I, this is some of the most meaningful conversations that I've had with people that I've met or worked with, where they said, 
uh, I was in my practice and I made a decision just to your point. It made me feel like I was empowered. I was not running away. This wasn't just like I'm feeling uncomfortable or even painful and I have to avoid it. It was like, no, I can be with this. And I made a really compassionate, wise decision because of these tools that I've learned. That's so meaningful for me. That's like the best of trauma sensitivity and all the work that you're doing sounds true. Like there's so much great information out there right now with trauma. And I'm, I think it's really empowering or can be empowering where I think it can go the other way is if people start to just overdo it with tools and they end up actually not getting back to a core part of, to me, meditation practice, which is just being with our experience. If we start micromanaging or overdoing it, I think that can also be unhelpful as well. So there's a bit of a middle path here, I think. Now, I know, David, your expertise is this intersection of mindfulness meditation and trauma healing. But as we're talking, I'm thinking about all these other approaches to spiritual discovery that people are engaging in. And what's really coming up for me, and I think you mentioned even doing breath work with Stan Groff, is the current rise of popularity of all different kinds of breathwork approaches and, you know, breathwork with music. And it's like, there's no sense in the way I've seen a lot of people teaching breathwork that there's any interest in people staying in their window of tolerance. In fact, the goal, it seems to be to explode the person into having some kind right. of different realization. So I'm wondering if you're going to soon start getting lots of calls uh, from people who have had uh, breathwork related trauma, and you're going to be training breathwork teachers. I'm, so I'm curious what you think about that. I mean, I it's so interesting. I don't know about you um, in the work you've done, but when I was a new therapist, when people would cry or have catharsis, I'd feel like, all right, I'm doing something. <laughs> Something's working. And I would even, I, I don't think I knew enough to just, I'd probably want to amplify it. Great, go deeper. Because it felt like something was happening and people were kind of quote unquote getting their money's worth. So I think catharsis has its own pull and draw for us. It feels like something's happening. The breath work is intense. I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories. I heard a story recently from a you know very prominent breath work circle where someone had had a big bloat experience, brought some trauma up, and they just kind of dropped them at the hospital. They didn't really follow through. I don't think there was a, a real trauma framework about how to work with that level of activation. So maybe, I'm curious what you think where it's going, because there's also, I feel like, um, psychedelic therapy. There's a lot of big experiences, which I'm all for. My question is, when is it going to be in service? Right, which brings forward now your trauma-informed approach. I, I think one thing that I think it's uh, hard to disagree with is that we need to be trauma-informed. Like everybody needs to be trauma-informed in the world today, in a world where there is so much collective trauma and where so many people who are part of our families and communities are experiencing trauma. We need to be trauma-informed. Now we get into, well, what does that actually mean? Right. And so now we're, and that gets into, you have these five principles. Uh, one of them you have for practice, stay within the window of tolerance. I can imagine that's going to get debated 
David. Sure. And I don't, and I'm not sure where I land on it, to be honest with you. I think I'm learning. I'm trying to understand it. So I think that's, to be honest with you, that's my reflection on this that. This is great. Let's talk about it. So I, sometimes people miss here, stay in the window as like, that's the goal. And the way that I meant to frame it in the writing, I should go back and look and see if I did a good job, but is actually just to have that as a baseline competency that you know is there. I don't mean that that's the goal of practice at all. It's more that if someone doesn't know how to hit the brakes or modulate the intensity of practice, or just to say they don't know how to come back in their window, then to me, more is not going to be better. We want people to know how to hit that e-brake, but I'm not saying that that would be, because then people can hear like, oh, well then we're just trying to be calm. And it's just all about having this kind of, you know, Zen approach, which I think can be misappropriated and totally misunderstood. That's, that's not the goal of trauma-sensitive practice. I would debate it as well. So let me put it back to you. If I was to say that I think it's a useful competency for someone who's coming to meditation to have, but that they could explore at some points being out of the window through different practices. Do you, what do you think of that? And is that what you were hearing in the... The wonderful thing about these uh, conversations is I always learn so much and it clarifies so much. And so as you're saying this, the idea is that we understand how to get back into the window of tolerance when we choose to and when we need to. Right. That Absolutely. makes perfect sense to me That's, as yeah. a competency that each one of us wants to have. Totally. It's like a tool. I, the more I think of all the people, I mean, IFS part work, like Richard Schwartz, and that's a whole amazing area that's a great tool for trauma, traumatized people working with parts. And the more that I meet people who have worked with their trauma and they seem to have, they've come to a, a place in their lives where they're satisfied, is that they have this whole toolkit. And I think that's a real step one toolkit is just, okay, what are the practices that are going to support you around your window to come back in? So yes, I'm thinking of it as a competency, but not to limit because this whole question of safety, I think safety can become tyrannical in some ways. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Okay, I want to make sure that we cover uh, all five principles as promised. We've introduced uh, the first two. The third one, keep the body in mind, working with dissociation. I'd like to hear more about that and specifically uh, how we know in our own experience if we're dissociated versus, as you talked about, those expanded states of melting into boundlessness Am where, I dissociated, David? <laughs> <laughs> this is where I feel like I should be interviewing you on this. I want to hear your opinion, but I'll try. I'll throw this out there. So when I was kind of starting, the, this is probably 10 years ago now, I feel like embodiment in meditation was big. Um, Reginald Ray, was he writing for Sounds True or no? Yeah, was yeah and, I, and I studied meditation with him for many, many, many years, 15 years. So, I mean, so here's my Reggie story. I was with, uh, I was at a, assisting um, with tech 15 years ago at a, at a day long. And it was a, or a two day weekend workshop and Reginald Ray came, hundreds of people here in San Francisco. And he sits down. The first thing he said is, everyone, I have come to the conclusion that all the meditation practice that I've been doing and my community has been for naught because we haven't been embodied. 
And <laughs> you just kind of hear a, a pin drop in the moment where he was really saying, I think there's a quality of disembodiment happening inside of practice. This is a key part of practice. Let's have that conversation. We went to a whole bunch of practices. I'm sure we could debate this. But I'm so to your question around trauma and embodiment, it's just there are going to be practices where transcendence, I think, can be a key part, even a goal of practice. I'm not saying that we don't, we don't have to always be embodied in practice. And I met so many people that were just trying to get away from the pain and constant suffering of the body um, and by transcending it in practice, as opposed to learning practices that would help them be more present with the sensations that were um, causing them so much pain. And in my experience with trauma, often it's that befriending of traumatic sensations that ends up creating a sense of healing and transformation and has people feel like they're getting their lives back. So I don't know if that's answering your question about what do you do at the edges, but yeah, go for right. it. Right. Well, let me ask you a personal question. How do you know when you're starting to dissociate in a situation? I try to track, that's a great question. Honestly, Tammy, I'm tracking, the, I try to track the half day or day after a sit or when I'm dissociating to see if it has lasting impacts. So I might notice that I'm dissociating and I could feel like I can't feel my feet anymore. My butt's not in the chair. I've lost contact with any kind of physical sensation. If I notice that, I'll often try to ask the question, cool, where did I go? Instead of just going, okay, I got to get back. I got to get back. If I notice it, I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm diffuse or I'm kind of 10 feet up and to the left. And then I'll assess for myself, like, well, what's the move here? What do I want to do? But for me, it's often the aftermath. Like I'm noticing, did it spin me out and leave me dissociated for the rest of the day? Or did I eventually kind of filter back in? Because I don't want to make dissociation wrong. I think that's actually a highly intelligent, sometimes even welcome part of practice. So to me, it's about the aftermath of it. What about you? How do you work with that? Uh, well, no, I think what you're saying is very useful. I think for me, what I find is that certain times I can become frozen if a situation seems overwhelming. I, I When I'm meditating and I feel like I'm dissolving into boundlessness, I don't feel dissociated. I yes. feel vast and I also feel connected to my body at the same time. I dissociate when I'm in a relational situation and I'm shutting down and I'm going vacant and I'm just sort of turning into ice and there's something I can't process. And then usually I thaw out afterwards and reflect on what was so painful. And then I have to feel what was so painful. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole process before I kind of come back uh, into a new kind of integration, which this brings us to your fourth trauma sensitive mindfulness principle has been, uh, I think probably the biggest healing key for me, you write practice in relationship, how important it is to support safety, not a small, make a small safety, yeah. but a sense of connectivity in relationship. Mm -hmm. There's so much to say here. Do we have another two hours? Can we just keep, <laughs> I mean, here, well, here's a personal story. Cause I just so appreciate you keeping bringing yourself in here. I was on a long retreat at this place called um, the Forest Refuge. I don't know if you know it, but it's I in do, Newberry yeah. and, and a long-term retreat place. And I got so excited. And a couple weeks in, I was in my room so solo. I mean, it was just so solitary. And I realized like, oh boy, I really recreated 
my childhood here. I'm back in my room. I'm alone. I'm not with anyone. I'm kind of cutting off. I'm numbing. I'm shutting down, which was really, and I oh, it was so painful, such a big cry. It was such a big part of the retreat. It was, it was really touching that pain. Like you just said so powerfully about noticing the freeze, then facing it with the tools you have. So that was a big part. And I think for many people, as you just said, uh, it was a big part of my own healing often is for people be, you know, often with trauma, it's like people weren't there in the way that we needed, or maybe they, they harmed us. And so there's something so key about just being back in relationship. And then there's this whole branch around the ways that social engagement actually really stimulates parts of the brain that support mindfulness. So I think of it as a key part of practice. And I'm saying that as someone who was on retreats, where in a moment that I was feeling so vulnerable, I'd open my eyes and all I would see was the back of people's shoulders. And there was no safety cues for me. There was no cues like someone's warm face. There was the teacher kind of up front, but mm-hmm. it's just this whole thing. Just there was just there's so much there that's needed. Now you train mindfulness teachers. What do you train them in in terms of creating the kind of relational connection? during a meditation retreat that will be helpful to people. That's so big. I mean, I think it's, that was the principle is like leveraging the interpersonal connection when appropriate, and then letting people have their powerful experiences in solitary practice. So I think it's this beautiful dance between making great attuned contact with someone, hopefully having them in an interview or having them feel met, safe, trusted, and then letting them go back into practice, kind of titrating that, Maybe it's a coach or a therapist where you're building trust over weeks at a time. But yeah, relationship it sounds like for you too. It's been such an important part of practice for me, both relating to myself mindfully, like intrapersonal practice and then interpersonal practice as well. Well, when you uh, said earlier in our conversation, uh, when the trauma healing person was working with you and said, what's working? And let's do, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, what's working for me in terms of trauma healing has been a deep, intimate healing relationship has helped me with uh, heal birth trauma and developmental trauma, unlike any number of hours on the cushion. Right. Uh, it, It was the combination, actually, that really generated the healing. For me, too. And I, where I get excited, and I think a lot of the work you've been doing here in these conversations is the weaving. Like it's yes. so rich. When I got to bring the energetic imprint of benefactors, people that had just mentored me and been with me, and I could bring their presence into a practice, it was a game changer for me. So I love that kind of mixing of tubes or drinks that just has so much healing um, happen. Mm -hmm. Now, your fifth principle of trauma-sensitive mindfulness is to understand social context. How do you train mindfulness teachers to do that? Well, it's a lifelong path, of course. But the main point I wanted to make is whenever we're offering any practice, I think it's just really useful for the person who's a teacher or coach, anyone in a position of authority, just to have an eye to or an awareness of social context. So when I was, for example, doing more one-to-one work and I was working um, across gender, I'm working with someone who's a woman, for example, that 
some of the requests, some of the practices I'm doing or are inviting this person to do, they're going to have a really different experience of bringing that practice out in the world, the amount of attention they might get targeting around sexism or their bodies. So to me, it's actually just a very practical way that we can be more effective is just continuing to look at the conditions that have shaped people's experiences um, in relation to trauma. So for example, the, all that's up right now in the US around abortion and that people will experience that news in different ways based on the bodies that they've been they've come up in. I just think the more we're aware of that, the more responsible that we can be. And I think we can go too far. I think identity, if we go too far towards the identity train, it can end up being um, problematic as well. But I saw a bunch of teachers who were just trying to skip identity, like we're all one, it's all good. And it's to me, it's that call for having a middle ground. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been focusing our conversation on trauma-informed mindfulness meditation practice. But let's say someone's spiritual practice is yoga, and they're listening to this conversation, and they're thinking, how does all this apply? I'm a yoga teacher. How does this apply to what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. The basic principle that we've been talking about also applies when it comes to yoga. So if you're asking someone in, in, a, in a posture in asana to pay sustained interoceptive or attention or inner awareness to what's happening in their bodies, you're likely going to bump them into trauma at some point. And again, that's not bad news. It's just a really powerful thing to ask someone to do. And as we started at the beginning here, it was to say uh, more won't always be better with inner awareness and attention. It can be very helpful, but if you just keep doubling down on paying attention to say traumatic sensations in the body during a yoga practice, there's going to be some people at the edge of the tails who may end up having a really painful experience. And, and so I think having room and curiosity about their experience and knowing some modifications that can be helpful as well. Now, one of the things I read in your book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, is this sentence, breath is not a neutral anchor for people. Yeah. And I thought, that's really interesting, you know, because of course I participate in so many different uh, webinars and Zoom calls and, you know, people start with, let's pay attention to our breath, you know, often to become centered. And I started thinking, maybe that's not the right, maybe that's not the right anchor Maybe that's not that some people are, are having a hard time, even just for a few minutes, using that as their centering device. And yeah. I'm curious what you have to say about that. It's so tricky. This was a big light bulb moment for me of realizing that the respiratory system is totally connected to our sympathetic nervous system, which will relate to trauma and fight flight. So that when we're asking someone to pay attention to the breath, that can often bring them really close in to the trauma that they might have lived through or could stimulate a, a trauma. For many people, the breath's going to be great. It's dynamic. It's an easy place to focus. And I think for most, it doesn't mean do away with the breath at all. The, to me, it's about providing a couple options. So maybe you're doing a breath meditation and you're saying, okay, you can pay attention to the breath. And you know, if that feels overwhelming, you can also feel your feet on the ground, or you could just pay attention to sound if that's available to you. It's just bringing in a couple of those options and not assuming that the breath is always going to be neutral because we want people to cultivate sustained attention through mindfulness through the breath, but maybe maybe the maybe a different anchor is actually going to support them to do that. Mm -hmm. You you offered 
uh, listening to sound, is that something that uh, relates to the nervous system differently when we're listening? For some people, it can be more of a neutral, uh, more of a neutral anchor. So quick nuance on this would be, there would be some people that might go out, identify a sound and then travel out. So they get to be out of the boundaries of their somatic experience that might feel overwhelming. For others, it just might be the receptive experience of hearing, if that's possible. So it just seems like the person I learned this from is someone named Michelle McDonald, who is a Theravadan teacher. And this was 20 years ago. She was working with sound because she was finding attention to physical sensations in her chest, abdomen, or around the nose. It was just too much for her. And she was finding the breath or the sound was just much more helpful for her. So you get to kind of play with a couple different anchors. And that's what a lot of the training I do is finding these little nuances to help people bring in options without overwhelming people. We don't want to give them 20 anchors and um, overwhelm them along the way. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my hypotheses at this moment in time is that we all need to be trauma informed. All of us, no matter what you're doing, we need to be trauma-informed business leaders. We need to be trauma-informed educators and trauma-informed lawyers, and no matter what our profession is. If you were to summarize for me, David, what it means to be trauma-informed, no matter how you express yourself in the world, what, what would you say the answer to that is? Hmm. Did you see this Oprah conversation around trauma-informed practice a couple of years ago? I think it was a 60 minutes piece. Well, she was doing a 60 minute piece on trauma-informed practice. And I apologies, I forget the person she was speaking to, but they have a book out now around it. And I remember watching her go through a massive paradigm shift to answer your question, uh, where she said it was the difference between what's wrong with you and what happened to you. And this light bulb went off for her where she was, I think, orienting to people more in a more problematic way around social conditions and then said, oh, wait, trauma is here. What would need to be in place to support you? Or let me just get curious. So to me, to be trauma-informed is to understand the world in terms of the impacts that trauma can have on the mind and body, which is to me, it's just so fascinating. You can learn so much. And if you can have a basic curiosity about someone's lived experience, and not just write them off, then I think we're all the better for it. Just quick example, quick story to illustrate this. Um, I was working with, I was actually on a retreat with someone sitting beside me who was uh, they were experiencing some labored breathing and they were quite tight in their practice. And it frustrated me so much during that, those two days. And at the end had a conversation with this person and we talked about it and it turns out they had had, I won't get into the, the details, but had a traumatic experience that it was really sh had shaped their experience of breath and breathing. And for me, I just, my, I just softened. It's like, Oh my God, you've been living through a real hard trauma through this retreat and it gave me more compassion and I understood their experience in different ways. So to me to be trauma informed is to actually get curious about people's experience and then be able to skillfully respond when trauma comes into the space. And then finally, David, this is now uh, the field that you've become really a leader in helping mindfulness meditation teachers become trauma informed. What do you hope the results will be of your work? 
I'm seeing people take the work and apply it in the most beautiful, dynamic, creative ways. And honestly, Tammy, it's, I mean, it's powerful to talk to you because as saying to you before, I feel like I got shaped around this work around sounds true and coming along the way these years. And actually in the last couple of months, I feel like, I feel like so much of what I tried to be um, bringing attention to in the book, it's kind of happened. Not that the work's done at all, but I now see people taking the work and bringing it to say um, mindful concussions or traumatic brain injuries or particular elements of um, developmental trauma. So people are bringing it into all of these amazing different areas. And I'm just happy to see the work kind of go on and I'm happy to keep showing up and lending my voice whenever it's helpful. I've been speaking with educator and psychotherapist David Trelevin. He's the author of the book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing. Thank you so much, David, for helping Insights at the Edge listeners become trauma-informed spiritual explorers. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Tammy. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>